Coronavirus NZ, a stuff podcast. Hmm, our email inbox is looking a bit thin. What are you talking about? It's chocker. No, it's not. Oh, hang on. You mean... Yeah, all those fruity nut jobs and scammers and lunatics who've written to us promising COVID cures with colloidal silver and the like. And there's one that somehow involves God, but that one is in Spanish, so it's a little bit hard to tell what's going on there. Yeah, I don't think we need to alert Ashley Bloomfield that we've found salvation just yet, eh? He's on a holiday next week, so he probably wouldn't care. Anyway... Hari mai. Welcome. This is Coronavirus NZ for Thursday, the 2nd of July. I'm Adam Dudding. And I'm Eugene Bingham, Tia Koto. Once a week, we bring in the news and some of the quirky things that we've noticed about this global pandemic, and then we slow things down to focus on one particular topic. So, he's gone, eh? Yeah, the slow-moving car crash that is David Clark, eh? Car crash? Is that the best metaphor we can come up with? Train wreck? Mm, kinda. Look, it all started with a bike ride, so... There must be some kind of cycling metaphor in there. Got it. It's been a slow leak, one of those annoying punctures. Aha, that's it. So, health minister in the middle of level four lockdown on April 4, we find out that he'd driven to a local mountain bike park. Local, not remote, remember? Got it. And then a couple of days later, it's revealed he'd driven 20 kilometres to take the family for a beach walk. Hey, fun fact, that beach that Dr. Clark went to, Dr. Theology, by the way, was actually called Doctor's Point Beach. Huh. Anyway, that's when the tin tack really went through the inner tube and the air started whistling out because Clark realised he'd blown it by ignoring the rules written by his own ministry. And he offered to quit, but the Prime Minister said, nah, not yet. Yeah, Jacinda Ardern back then was more or less saying, look, the puncture's only on the bottom, we're in the middle of a pandemic here, he can ride on. And so he kind of wobbled along for a couple of months, but he'd just become such an easy target. And yeah, the final nail, well, sorry, tack, was... When he was just mean to Ashley Bloomfield, there was that genius pan by the TV3 camera operator that moved from Clark to a forlorn Bloomfield as his boss blamed him for the border bungles. So that was it. The bike tyre was on the rims and Clark had to leap from his 10-speed without even putting up the footstand. He resigned as health minister and Ardern quickly accepted it and she gave Chris Hipkins his job, just like that. I wonder if she said, on your bike, mate. Anyway, speaking of border bungles, that's one of the things we talk about today in our interview with Dr. Rod Jackson. He's an epidemiologist from Auckland University, and he's got some interesting ideas to share. You know, it feels like weeks since we were last here, and that's mainly because it actually is. Last week we cheated and brought you that show that we prepared earlier, since we're both away on leave. So with 14 days having passed, it kind of feels like we need to catch up with a bit of stuff. And in fact, quite a bit has happened. So here goes. Yeah, I guess we've got to start with the border bungles. And I know that's become a bit of a loaded phrase, hasn't it? But actually, there were a couple of developments which highlighted that, yeah, things weren't quite going to plan in New Zealand's quarantine facilities. I mean, look, in the end, it hasn't been catastrophic. There's been no evidence of a return of community transmission. But what all started with the revelation that two arrivals from the UK had been allowed bereavement leave from isolation without being tested drove to Wellington and subsequently tested positive, did spark a flurry of revelations, didn't it? That hundreds of others too had left isolation without being tested, that those day three and day 12 tests weren't being done as they should, that in some instances there was a bit too much mingling going on in those facilities. And where it all led is a bit of a shake-up and a sharpening up of the system. Megan Woods was appointed as the minister in charge of the managed isolation and quarantine facilities, 
and Air Commodore Darren Webb was announced as the person with operational responsibility for them. And we learned from a review of the facilities that the system, while not broken, was under, quote, extreme stress. It all just seemed to emphasise that while New Zealand has done extremely well in combating COVID-19, it's not a fight you can walk away from, is it? And we've got to be constantly on guard for weaknesses. And there's debate over one of those weaknesses in particular, which is air crew. So remember, they're exempt from the 14-day isolation rules, which has led to people such as Sir David Skegg, that's the University of Otago epidemiologist, identifying air crew as an obvious risk. Sounds fair enough. There's a piece in Newsroom this week where Skegg points to the Bluff Cluster, you've got to be careful how you pronounce that one, which involved 98 cases. So he said that's an example of what can happen when one infected air steward goes back into the community. There's been some tightening of the rules, but Skegg is still worried about the fact that crew returning from overseas are allowed to then fly domestic. So David said... It worries me that after arriving back in New Zealand, such crew can get straight onto a domestic flight home. I would prefer not to be sitting next to them. Absolutely. Me neither, actually. Things change fast, though. The Ministry of Health has said that the rules for air crew are being looked at again, so maybe the situation's going to change. I guess it's sort of like Susie Wilde said about the entire COVID-19 response. We're still building the planes we fly it. Alert levels, quarantine protocols, advice on masks, all of it. They keep changing as we, I don't know, navigate to an appropriate cruising altitude in the face of extreme turbulence with the hope that one day we'll find a safe runway to land on. Are you sure you don't want to extend that metaphor just a little further, Adam? Sure. Uh, We should all be fastening our seatbelts, I guess. No, Uh, that, that, that wasn't an invitation. Stop. Anyway, the ever-changing situation applies in Australia too, and particularly in Victoria, where community transmission is back on the rise. On Wednesday, there were 72 new cases, the majority in 10 Melbourne suburbs. They've had two weeks of double-digit positive tests. And by the way, this Melbourne outbreak has been linked to their quarantine facilities, so it just shows you how important it is to get those systems right. The spike in cases has led to the reimposing of lockdown in hotspot suburbs, And it's also reignited the debate back here in New Zealand about whether a trans-Tasman bubble is a good idea after all. Winston Peters is standing by it saying, look, most states have no or virtually no community transmission. Places like Queensland are opening up more and more. You know, they're allowing gatherings of up to 100 people now a week earlier than planned. But poor old Victoria, particularly those in those hotspot suburbs, imagine being in one of those lockdown, looking out your window at the next suburb over where people are out and about, well, at least a little bit more than you can be. It's really tough. There's one aspect of the situation in Victoria that actually made me feel a bit nostalgic, if I'm honest. What was that? Toilet paper panic. Apparently, as soon as the rumours began that new local lockdowns might come, the supermarkets noticed that all the blue paper was flying off the shelves again. I mean... I do feel for anyone who's faced with a return to lockdown. But the one thing we did learn from the first time round is actually there is always enough toilet paper during a pandemic, as long as everyone remembers not to panic buy the toilet paper. Anyway, I'm possibly overthinking this. wonder how the flower supplies are in Victoria. Do we need to launch a new WTF investigation? Sure. What about WTAF? Where's the Australian flower? Ah, uh, see what you did there. Hey, what about that new pig pandemic virus? Are we going to have to change the name of the podcast to G4EAH1N1NZ? It's not very catchy, but, you know. Mm, Probably not yet. Look, in case you missed it, this is 
about the reports of a new influenza virus which has been described, rather ominously really, as a good candidate for another pandemic. But when you look a bit closely, the research has actually been going on for a little while. It's a pig influenza that's made the jump to humans and it's been common on Chinese pig farms since 2016. It's a newish strain of that old familiar H1N1 virus. It's a family of flu viruses that's been around for a long time. So the reason it's suddenly become news this week is that it was a subject of a study which was sent for review in back in early December, but it was just published on Monday this week. In other words, this is something that was on the health community's radar already. So it's not an immediate or not exactly a new threat, but if there's something COVID-19 has taught us, it's that, yeah, we need to take these zoonotic viruses, that's ones that have jumped from animal to human, really seriously. And that's why they're being studied. Hey, speaking of old science studies, the New York Times is a really interesting piece about a married pair of Russian virologists who, back in the 1950s, they were experimenting on their own kids testing out polio vaccines. One of their discoveries was that a side effect of the vaccine was it prevented the kids getting other viral illnesses for about a month or so after each dose. And so they used to give it to them once a year to ward off the flu and things. And now scientists are going back and having a look at that idea again, wondering if doses of other live vaccines, including that same polio vaccine, might provide immunity against COVID-19, even if it's just temporary. Hey Adam, have you ever done any experiments on your kids? Yeah, I've, I've market tested the occasional feature article on them over the years, but I find that it does tend to induce some unwelcome side effects. Oh yeah? What like? Yawning. Acute eye rolling. Ooh, what's that? Do I hear the familiar sound of our once was regular, then stop, but now it's kind of back in a very irregular kind of way, famous people infection news music sting? Yes, you do. Novak Djokovic has got it. Yeah, this is crazy. So Djokovic is the world's number one tennis player and he decides to organise a tournament because, of course, like every other sport, tennis is kind of ground to a halt. So, hey, let's all get together and play, right? Just So Djokovic, he's an anti-vaxxer, right? Yep. Anyway, the final of the tournament had to be cancelled when Djokovic tested positive for COVID-19. Oh, and by the way, so did his wife, so did his coach, and surprise, surprise, so did at least three other players at the tournament because, you know, this is bonkers. It would be in bad taste to insert a tennis joke here, right? Depends what you serve up. Ha! Huh. <laughs> <laughs> right, let's get... Right, let's get to the main event. Today's interview is with Dr. Rod Jackson. He's a professor of epidemiology at Auckland University. His main interest is in chronic diseases, particularly cardiovascular diseases. That's right, but he's also been interested lately, of course, in COVID-19. And he's been researching and, and writing on several aspects, including something called the infection fatality proportion which we'll leave up to him to explain. Also, he's been quite outspoken about the fact that he thinks the so-called border bungles were actually a good thing. Again, we'll leave that to him to explain. So, here's our interview with Professor Jackson. Hi, Rod. Hi, how are you? Very well. So, now before we get on to COVID-19, we need to deal with something. As we were Googling around to prepare for this interview, we came across this YouTube video which we don't think we can ignore. I'm sorry, Rod Jackson. When I eat a meal, never care about my arteries, just can't stand the taste of margarine. The video is called I'm Sorry, Rod Jackson, and it, it is 10 years old, 
but it's really quite something. Um, so I teach a class of about 1,200 uh, 18-year-olds every year. And uh, it's an introductory course to epidemiology at the University of Auckland. So everyone in, at the University of Auckland who wants to do medicine or nursing or pharmacy or any kind of science related to health takes this course. And about 10 years ago, a student who was, he's now a doctor, um, decided to write a song about me. And he used that song, I'm Sorry, Miss Jackson. And you'll pick it up on that video, uh, some of the stuff I talk about. I talk about butter. I'm actually a cardiovascular disease epidemiologist, so I'm very interested in diet and heart disease. Indeed. There are some quite startling moments involving butter, it yeah. has to be said. Um, yes. We're going to put a link to that video in the show notes for this, for this episode. So if anybody wants to check it out, I would strongly recommend it. But the point is, of course, that the video speaks to your deep knowledge of epidemiology and public health, and which is why you are qualified, indeed, to, to have written a number of opinion pieces about COVID-19 since the, the pandemic began. And it's one of those that took our interest. There's one that ran in the Herald recently where you said that New Zealand's border bungles, you know, the two women on the motorway and COVID cases back in the wild in New Zealand briefly, and the freaking out that followed those bungles, you said were actually a really, really good thing. So that sounds yeah. pretty counterintuitive. So what did you mean when you said that? Yeah, they shortened my title, which they guess they had to in the Herald, but it was... My title went, the, the bungle at the border is the best news I've heard since we came out of lockdown. Right. And the reason is that I believe that an elimination strategy, which I know we'll get back onto, where we eliminate COVID, is, is, is the only viable option. It's the only viable option actually for the world. But New Zealand had pretty much nailed it. But there was this increasing pressure for us to open up at the border and the pressure was coming from right across the country from obviously from politicians sniping at each other but also from the business community and also the the public and so what happened when when we had this bungle at the border and people started freaking out that maybe we would lose our sort of newfound freedoms i i think for perhaps the first time for a lot of new zealanders they started taking it really really seriously it was as if they had finally woken up to what we'd gained. I mean, we'd been locked down, uh, as everyone knows, for a period of time. But it, it's something also that I talk about in another one of my Herald pieces, which is entitled um, A Public Health Triumph, Nothing Happened. Yeah. And so what, what that's about really is that, that when we succeed, it's invisible. You know, the, the public health success, the elimination of COVID in New Zealand was kind of invisible. Nothing happened. And, and so no one really felt any pain in terms of health, but a lot of people felt the economic pain. So we, we got this amazing health gain, which no one actually experienced because no one got sick, but we still had the economic pain. But when we had the bungle at the border, it, it was almost like New Zealanders woke up and they realised, oh, my God, we could end up going back into level two, level three, level four. They freaked out and they suddenly realised just what they had to lose. And it's interesting because, the, the, you know, doing this podcast, we've obviously been reading the New Zealand news, but also the international news. So the information is there if you care to look. But there's something about it being just on our own border rather than in Italy, New York or Spain. Yeah, people don't look very far. I mean, I'm reminded of the Christchurch earthquake even. 
you know, unless you actually lived in Christchurch. I, I remember visiting Christchurch actually more than a year afterwards, and I cried when I saw the uh, the fence, basically a fence round the central business area of Christchurch. I actually cried, mm-hmm. and and I and but I realised that. I hadn't experienced any of it. It was even if just down the road, and yet that was horrendous for the people of Christchurch. And so I think you're right. Uh, unless it's in your face, you don't actually really take it seriously. And, um, well, a lot of people don't. One of the other points you raised, which I thought was interesting, is that our attention was drawn to the freedoms that we had very recently become used to again. They're being able to be in a full-packed cinema, being able to high-five someone, which I obviously do all the time. Yeah, and to go to the rugby, for example. Yeah, I was. Um, my wife and I were, were out for a walk on a Sunday afternoon. It was the first Blues game. And we came across an old colleague. He was a grandfather. He was with his son and his two grandsons. And they were off to a game of rugby where they were going to be rubbing shoulders with 45,000 other people Mm. and they could do that safely. The grandfather was a professor of biostatistics who knew quite a lot, had been following it, and he felt safe. He had the freedom to take his son and his grandchildren to a game where there were 45,000 others. And and I think that's a freedom that we finally realised we had. If I go right back to to what I said at the beginning, I, I think elimination is the only viable option for the world. And the only way you're going to do that is to take everyone with you. I guess it's Jacinda's team of five million, which I used to kind of cringe a little bit about, but it was true, is that the bungle at the border actually brought those five million people back on board into the team. Let's talk about elimination and and the strategy that that we've followed. And Many other countries have ended up just sort of fighting fires as as COVID runs rampant. But, you know, you've said publicly that other countries should also be seriously thinking about elimination. Isn't it just simply too late? I mean, for the likes of the UK and the US to even dream of eliminating COVID? It's never too late. It's never too late. I mean, this is a nasty virus, but it surprisingly has some good characteristics as well. The first thing is that, you know, if you get infected with COVID and it runs its course, it's over for most people within a month. And if in that one month you don't infect anybody else, and you survive. If you survive that month without infecting anybody else, then it's fine. And so there are a whole series of strategies that allow us to keep infected people away from other infected people. And if you can do that, it goes away, it dies out. It's not like a chronic disease. It's not like something that's gonna catch up with you over years, it's gone. And the great thing about COVID is that you've got about five days on average between when you get infected and when you infect other people. And that five-day window is really the saviour when it comes to COVID. And we don't have that for flu. Like flu, it's two days. So no way to stop flu. But if you can get in that five-day window and identify cases identify who they've been in contact with and keep those people away from others, you can stop it. And you still think that's a viable option for countries like the UK and and the US to really get on board with that elimination strategy? The US, I I don't know about the US. 
Uh-huh. It's so wacky, isn't it? I really don't know about the US, but I think most other countries, and I don't know about Brazil, I mean, but if you've got leadership, and I'm not suggesting that Boris is the ideal leader but um, in the UK, but you can get on top of this. We've seen Spain get on top of it. We've seen France, we've seen Italy get on top of it. And they've done it by restrictive lockdowns. I mean, it's a very blunt instrument, uh, a lockdown, but a lockdown simply keeps infected people away from uninfected people, and that works. Taiwan has done it a completely different way. Taiwan, you know, they were onto it before anybody else, and they were well prepared. I often use the analogy of we did it with a sledgehammer, they did it with a scalpel. With COVID-19, there's always been a lot of different numbers to keep track of. There's infection rates, case rates, infection fatality rates, R-noughts, there's a K in there somewhere. But I understand you've been turning your epidemiological eye to one particular number, and that's something called the infection fatality proportion. So what's that? It's a proportion. It's, you know, if you get infected um, with this virus, um, how, you know, what proportion of people who get infected will be dead? And it's, it's within a month, basically. That's the, you know, usually by the end of the month, you know. Why does this number matter so much? Why has it been so hard to figure it out? And what do we know about it? Okay, let's start with why it matters so much. It's quite interesting now that, you know, most people have heard the term herd immunity now, haven't they? And, mm. um, and so, but I'll just explain that. So one of the, the, the natural ways that um, viruses die off, well, indeed, the main natural way that, that viruses and other infections die off is when enough people in a population have been infected and are now immune to future infection that the virus has no one left to infect, well, not enough people to infect. The, a, a virus, and indeed a bacteria, they, they, they need enough people around who can be infected for them to survive. With COVID, it's been estimated that you need to infect about 60% of a population before you get what's called herd immunity. And that's an assumption that being infected does make you immune, and that's, that's another assumption. But it's been estimated to be about 60%. So my interest in the infection fatality proportion was that I wanted to get a, a sense of how many people out there are infected, because if 60% is what you need, I wanted to know how close we were to that. And... You can't use the cases, believe it or not. Um, is I almost never look at reported cases of COVID because the reported cases is so dependent on how many people you test. And most countries don't test everyone. In fact, on average, most countries are detecting about one in five to one in 10 cases. So just looking at the number of cases that are reported and dividing by the total number of people in that population is unhelpful. Does that make sense? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So if you can't use the cases to estimate how many people have been infected in a population, what can you use? Well, as an epidemiologist, um, the, the, the best data we have, and it's never perfect, are the deaths because they're the closest to a true figure, a, a meaningful number. And 
if you know how many deaths there are, then you can work back to how many cases are, there are if you know <laughs> what proportion of infected people die. And as it happens, and it's kind of nice of COVID to do this, it looks like one in 100 people who get COVID die on average in Western country. It looks to be one in 100. And so if there's one death, you just multiply by 100 to get the cases. Right. I mean, New Zealand, fortunately, doesn't have enough cases to do the equation. Um, you need about 100 deaths to get any kind of meaningful estimate. But once you've got that, you then multiply by 100 and you get an estimate of the true number of cases. And to get, I mean, we probably don't want to go into how I got that infection fatality proportion as 1 in 100, but you, you put together lots of little studies from all over the place. There are certain ships where they were a captive population. So you had everybody on the ship and they were all tested. So we know what proportion got infected. We know how many died. I mean, there are multiple different studies around the world and everything increasingly points to it being to about 1 in 100. Right, so the data comes from places where you've got an extremely controlled situation where you're getting that completest kind of measurement that you can't get in a population, correct? That's where I started because that's all we had. But over the last month, there have been increasing numbers of these studies they call serological studies where you take a blood test of someone and that helps you determine whether they've been infected. So that's not the test we use to tell whether you've gotten infection, but after you've been infected and, and you're recovered, um, people have antibodies to the virus, and those are called serological tests. And there are increasing numbers of those studies being done, and, and you need a sort of representative sample of the population. And they've been done in Spain, they've been done in France, uh, they've done them in Sweden, uh, they've done them in New York. And that's another way to estimate the true number of people have been infected. And they all point to about 1%. And the scary thing is, is that aside from New York City, which looks like about 20% of the population have already been infected, and that's still scary, um, almost every other study that's been done suggests that even in the hardest hit countries like Belgium, um, France, Italy, Spain, and the UK, well under 10% of the population have been infected. And that's scary. Why? And that's scary because if you need to have 60% of the population infected before you get herd immunity and the, and the virus dies off naturally, that means for nearly all, for almost every country, does that mean we've got six more rounds of what's happened so far? Mm. The, the scary thing is that despite the battle zones, you know, that doctors have described in hospitals throughout most of Western Europe and indeed in New York, we're nowhere near herd immunity. Herd immunity is so far off and the cost is going to be so high that it's not a strategy that I think is viable. Zoom back, zoom out a little bit, and we, you know, we've established that you're an epidemiologist, and YouTube has established that you're an epidemiologist specialises in <laughs> chronic disease, particularly heart disease. So you, you've been at the front line, really, with the point where public health and politics and, and powerful lobby groups inter intersect, and eventually we get movement that leads to improvements in public health. But the response to COVID too is inevitably a mix of politics and science and public health and commerce and 
we just wondered, what have you made of the way that those different parts have worked together in this crisis? I, I've been amazed at how well it's worked. And, and I think um, the reason it's, it's, it's worked so well here is um, because of trust and respect. You, you could just see it that Ashley Bloomfield and Jacinda Ardern clearly work well together. You, you can see there's mutual respect. Michael Baker, who's another big name in this, has worked well with them. I mean, they don't always agree, but you can see that there is mutual respect and trust. David Skegg is another name that we often see who's highly respected both in New Zealand and worldwide. And, and so you've got a group of people who respect each other and listen to each other and we've done just amazingly well because, because of that. Um, and, and I guess you've also, um, we've, we've got a prime minister who appears to value life <laughs> highly. You know, you do get the sense with some people that my money is more important than your life. You do get the sense that life and, and health is extremely highly valued by the people in power. I mean, we've got lots of things going for us. We're a small community. You know, we all know each other. You know, Ashley, I, I taught Ashley. Ah. <laughs> um, what, was he, what was he like as a student? He was great. He was great. <laughs> he was a great student. And I've known him, you know, for decades. I know David Skeed for decades. Michael Baker. We, we're, a small, we're a small enough country where we all know each other. Mm. And and so that breaks down a whole lot of barriers for a start. And the the other thing, you know, you haven't heard much sniping from the sidelines from academia, and that's partly because we're all talking behind the scenes. We're all working. I mean, we've had a small number of spokespeople from the academic side. I mean, there was Susie Wiles in Auckland, and we've we've let Michael Baker and David Skeg um, be the main spokespeople. But there's a lot of stuff going on behind the scenes. There's lots of emails, there's lots of discussions, there's lots of reviews of the evidence. Everyone's helping each other, trying to, you know, make sure that we make the best decisions. Mm. Look, I think it's worked extremely well. And you can see in several other countries, I mean, it seems that in Iceland there's a similar situation. seems that in Taiwan there's a similar situation. It's kind of when your public health leaders and your politicians are working together, that's when we've seen successes. Well, I was wondering, so if New Zealand's approach has worked and where other countries have really struggled, are we in a position to be advising them if they do try to follow us towards elimination? Or is it actually the strategies are kind of obvious, you just do lockdowns and just suck it up until it's done? Well, the strategies are obvious and which ones you use depend on where you are in the pandemic. I'd like to go back to Taiwan just for a minute. So Taiwan has never had a lockdown, and yet Taiwan is closer <laughs> to where it all started than, than any other country. But they were super prepared. They got testing up and running and immediately. And, and they're 25 million people, so they're not a tiny place. Mm. Big country. So they're testing, they're contact tracing, they're isolation. They push masks early on, which have an effect. But well, what Taiwan has done all the way through is what New Zealand can now do if we got an outbreak mm. in the community. So if you go back to why, you know, I again, back to my 
article in the Herald about why the bungle at the border is the best news I've heard, whereas pretty much every other New Zealander was freaking out because they were thinking we'd go back to level four, what most New Zealanders probably don't realise is that in that period since we had to go into lockdown, we've been getting better at doing a Taiwanese-type <laughs> approach. We, we just didn't have the capacity. We didn't have the ability. But we're in a much better position now to actually use a scalpel. But that scalpel depends, of course, on us keeping our borders closed because if we opened our borders and we had people coming in to Auckland, to Wellington, to Christchurch, to Queenstown, and they were bringing in new cases, we would run out of capacity. But we can cope. We can cope with the occasional infection and hit it hard. Um, Australia is another good example. So they're, they're, they've got a few problems at the moment, but I think they can deal with it. I mean, they have to go hard. And, and they've, they're going to have a limited lockdown, it seems, in parts of Victoria. Um, but the combination of a limited lockdown and then really go hard with the other strategies is what they need to do. All right, Professor Jackson, this has been a fascinating conversation, but we had better let you get back to teaching the next generation of Ashley <laughs> Broomfields. <laughs> so thank you for your time. You're welcome. That's the Coronavirus NZ podcast for Thursday, the 2nd of July. I'm Adam Dudding. Here's Eugene Bingham. Thank you to Rod Jackson, Alex Yu, Catherine George, Patrick Crutzen, and Carol Hirschfeld. You can find us on all the podcast platforms. And if you want to get in touch with us, you can email viruspod at stuff.co.nz. If you want to support Stuff's journalism financially, go to the link on the Stuff website, stuff.co.nz. See you back here next Thursday. Ra pere. Enohora. Enohora.